Good morning. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. We got an extra hour sleep. I love it. I wish we could do this every Sunday. Like just kind of like just let's just keep, you know, incrementing the time. But then it would be it would get a little awkward, I think, after a couple weeks. So once we're meeting at two in the morning, let's pitch black sort of thing. Um, if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, we'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59, uh, wrapping up chapter 12 today. And as you're turning there, um, I, I want to make an announcement. I asked Rick to go lightly on the Thanksgiving celebration. Um, <clears throat> our church is really larger than the two services that meet on Sunday mornings. We have the Hispanic service. They are a part of our church. Um, we're separated only by language. And so we want to teach the Bible in a way that is in people's heart languages. And so Thanksgiving is really one of these celebrations to me that embodies like even more than Christmas. It really embodies a Christian virtue and something that being thankful is, is a, is a mark of Christianity. And so it's just, it, while we are separated by language and there, it kind of is hard when you don't speak the same language as somebody but we're all one in Christ, and a day will come when we all will be able to communicate um, together. And so these, this Sunday night, the 20th, it's just such a fun night. I mean, it's this place. We, we basically, in two weeks, are going to clear out everything here, and we're going to pack this place with tables, and it's gonna, we're going to be smush, smushed in here like sardines. And it's not going to be like English speakers, the Spanish speakers. It's like we're going to... We, especially on our side of the house, we have to go out of our way to to kind of disseminate amongst everybody because um, because of the culture in the United States and how people who don't speak English are sort of, um, you know, there's tension there. And so we want to go out of our way to express the love of Christ and say, hola, you know, start taking a little Spanish lessons. It's okay. You can you can love people without speaking the same language. Um, we're going to have great food. I really need to get busy this week. Um, see, last year, my strategy was like, oh, it'll all work out. And it did all work out. But Mrs. Pat Towsley had a few suggestions. And so it's going to work out a whole lot better this year. And so what we're doing is the goal next week is we have like little trays of um, that you can put in like the sterno holder so they stay warm. And so instead of having like variety of just surprise us, we're going to send like we're going to get all the trays like, hey, we need this filled with mashed potatoes. We need this filled with stuffing. We need this filled with whatever, you know, the, the, the things. If you're willing to like cook a turkey and ham, the meat is super important because we want to bless the guys um, with meat when they leave that night, because meat is a treat for a lot of these guys. Um, but you don't, you can't afford to buy a turkey or ham. Let us know, and we'll like if you'll cook it, we'll provide it. And so we don't want money to be a barrier for anybody. And of course, there'll be pie, and there'll be a time my father-in-law, who is bilingual, will come up and give a message in both English and Spanish. And somebody we're not sure who. I always have my wife on backup that could lead us in worship in Spanish and English. And so it's just a great night. And and there's going to be tons of food like that. You had me sold on food, you know, like this is a, it'll be a, just a great time. And so just, this is all for me because I have a lot to get done before next Sunday. So the goal next Sunday is to send you home with everything you need. On the day of the event, we're going to need a lot of help. There's like three waves of setup crew, like right after church, we're going to have to strip this place out, get the table set up. 
Um, then there's like the decorating setup crew, and then there's the breakdown. And so just, you know, be prepared. I don't have all the information here yet, but next week I will. Um, okay. So before we get started, just a little, there's a little picture behind me. Just I- any observations about this picture? What is, uh, well, why is it upside down? Aren't we floating and in space? So do we think it's upside down? The question is, is why do we think it's upside down? Is it really upside down? You know, we, we have taken the earth and we've kind of put the United States kind of central, like, you know what I mean? Like, we view it the other way around. But that doesn't really mean it's right side up, because aren't we kind of floating through space and, you know, just kind of doing stuff? And, and you know, gravity, like, I kind of feel like this way's down, the way I'm, because gravity's pulling me this way. But it doesn't really affect that this sort of thing. And the reason I put this picture here, because this, is, this message is one of the messages. We're working our way through. Uh, G- Jesus is going to be teaching a lot leading to the cross. Time-wise, leading to the cross, there's not much time. But there's a whole lot of content. And today's kind of one of those fire and brimstone messages. It's kind of awesome. You know, this is, I love teaching these things. <clears throat> but, but the idea is humanity really views stuff upside down. And when we come to Christ and we're converted, it's God's way of putting us right side up. Although we feel like we're upside down when we compare ourselves. And so my heart in teaching the Bible, like I'm not, I'm kind of big on, like like I'm all for conversion, a person giving themselves to Christ. But even a a more important, why we kind of take a book of the Bible at time, why we look at it as a whole, is my aim is really that we would convert to a biblical worldview that our understanding of the world around us is is kind of shaded through a biblical understanding of what god has revealed to himself and so this picture looks upside down because you know somebody i didn't really do my research on the the origins of of how the the globe was kind of created and how we said which way was right side up or you know but but this looks upside down to us, but there's really no basis for it being upside down. We're just kind of floating out there, and it doesn't really, it's just however you look at it. But it, I'm sure most of us, if you get seasick, you could look at this picture and get yourself sick. And I go, that's just not right. <clears throat> and, so when, and so Jesus is going to start confronting in our text today that when he flips us right side up, there's going to be tension with those that we are around. Because they're upside down, we're right side up. And it's hard to kind of get along with the world around us when we're so backwards. And so I'm going to pray and ask God help for this, this text because we're going to get a whole new look of Jesus. This is likely not the Jesus you were introduced to in Sunday school growing up. Um, Father, we just come before you. We give you thanks, Lord, for this day. Father, I thank you that you are God. Thank you that your ways are not our ways. Father, we thank you that you revealed um, yourself to us through your word. Lord, we believe that we wouldn't know about you unless you chose to share yourself with us. And so, Father, we come to the the scriptures today. Uh, Lord, really a long stretch of of learning about you through the gospel of Luke. And as we um, settle into this story, Father, we pray that your spirit would um, illuminate its meaning to us. Uh, convict us, Lord. Um, Lord, it goes against 
everything that's politically correct. It goes against everything in our culture. And so, Lord, I pray that as we work through this text, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Um, Lord, that you would humble us before you. Um, We know your ways are good. And so, Lord, help us as we work through this text. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it'll be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, You will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. And Lord, again, we thank you for this story. We come before you asking for help. May you guide us and direct us as we work through this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're just kind of like this story, we we can, a lot of guys will just take it and look at it and kind of forget the context of what happened. So the context of what happened And Jesus had been invited to, at the end of chapter 11, over to this Pharisee's house for lunch. As he goes down for lunch, he sits down. He doesn't go through all of the religious ceremonies. He he doesn't, the Young's Little Translation, I really think says it best. He didn't baptize himself before lunch. So as he sits down, the Pharisees and scribes are kind of like, like, what do we do? Like, we can't sit at this table with him because he's not clean. He's contaminated. It's not hygienic. This was religion. And so Jesus confronts the Pharisees three different ways, and then he confronts the scribes three different ways. He challenges them for their hypocrisy, for their religion, that they don't even know God, and yet they block people who are trying to know God. He walks out of that place furious. The very last verse of chapter 11 tells us that from that point on, that the scribes and Pharisees began to, to, to set after Jesus. And they would eventually, in a matter of weeks, arrest him and crucify him. And as he steps out of the Pharisee's house, he discovers that thousands upon thousands of people had gotten word of where he is. And they're stepping on each other. This is a crowd that's out of control. He immediately kind of talks to his 12 disciples in the midst of this crowd. And he guards them. He warns them against hypocrisy. He warns them against greed. And then last week we looked at, he, guard, he, he told them to be ready for his return. And it's intense. And so from this, we get to this verse, verse 49. 
I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Okay, this is how do we how do we handle this? How, how do we look at this verse? Now, I like I really appreciate the commentators that say, you know, there's a lot of difficulty translating this. We have some kind of it's hard to kind of figure out what's going on here. Now, I appreciate their sort of maybe humility, but I would like a little a little more substance. Some guys take this verse, which and they kind of that last song we sang, Lord, light the fire again. They say, oh, this is he wants to kind of ignite us to get the world on fire for him. That's easier to swallow, but I just don't think it's the case here. He says, I have come to cast fire on the earth. He doesn't say, you know, to encourage people or to get them motivated for me and how I wish it were already time to, that there was kindling already there. In the last few days, I've been able to like get my fireplace going. See, I love the winter time. I like getting the fires, you know, and then by the end of winter, I'm like, I'm so ready for it to be 150 degrees again. You know, I'm all, but I'm at the point now where it's like, oh, it's so nice. And you get your little embers going, you're kindling, and then you get like logs. And then by the time it gets raging, it's like, man, I can just take a big old thing of wood and just throw it in there and it'll burn. In Valley Center, we have a very healthy fear of fire. Like just two weeks ago, when the, all the Santa Anas rolled through, people were on their nerve. There's, a, there's a, a little brush fire broke out by Rincon and people are scared because we know the fear of fire. So I don't think it was to like, to like light this fire in individuals again. Jesus is angry. He's upset as he's coming out of this Pharisee's house. He's warning his disciples. And so hermeneutics, when we are studying the Bible, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. We go to the Bible for help. And if you've been paying attention, about a year ago, we encountered this word fire in the, in the gospel of Luke. And so when, we, when you study scripture, and you go, okay, cast fire upon the earth. What's he talking about? Well, let's go to Luke and, and say, Luke, have you used this? How have you used this in context? And because I have notes behind me, you guys can all cheat. You'll, you'll remember that in Luke chapter 3, in the inauguration of Jesus' ministry right before his baptism, John the Baptist, in chapter 3, verse 8, He's in the river challenging people's sin, boldly calling people out. His death, ultimately Herod. Herod kind of like listened to him. But Herod was this ruthless man. Uh, we don't understand ruthless. This is, Jesus is like in his 30s, but you guys all remember the Christmas story when Jesus was born. And, and the, the king, Herod said, oh, I want to, um, I want to worship this baby that's going to be king. Can you tell me where he is? Well, they didn't really tell him, okay, so we're just going to have every child under two years old killed that's a boy. Like, that's pretty bad. Like, I don't think we, um, we know that kind of evil in this world. And so this was a, Herod was somebody to be feared, and yet John the Baptist is like, hey, man, you're in a relationship with your brother's wife, and it's inappropriate, and he's challenging him boldly from the water. You need to repent and come to God. And so in the midst of this, verse 8, I think, verse 8, of chapter 3, it says, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So John the Baptist is in the water, likely 
we we're see it's around this context that the Pharisees and scribes kind of show up what's going on. So he's challenging the religion of the day. And he's saying, don't go telling me that Abraham's your grandfather and so you're exempt because you're special before God. He says, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He's talking about Israel, that God's about to take this axe to this tree of Israel. It's at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so here's this talking about cutting it down, burning it because it's bad. Then from this, three groups of people start asking, well, what about us? What about us? What shall we do? And so he baptizes these three groups of people. And then in verse 15, John the Baptist sermon continues. He says, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with an unquenchable fire. And so as he starts prophesying about Jesus, see, John the Baptist is essentially one of the last Old Testament prophets, and he walks onto the pages of the New Testament. He was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so now he's the forerunner saying the Christ is coming, and he uses fire in sort of two sense. There's a refining, sort of like this purification sense of the word, and then the second part is that it's a judgment sort of fire. If we turn the pages as we're working our way back, I'll ask you to stop at chapter 9. And I'm not making you stop here because this, I think, is one of the funniest stories in the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> we all know the, the Apostle John. He was the oldest of all the apostles at the end of his life. He was the only one that wasn't killed for his faith. He's known as the Apostle of Love. And here in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, <clears throat> it's in today's story. They've been working their way up to Jerusalem for the, for the feast. They needed to go through Samaria. Samaritans hated Jews and vice versa. And as they were going through, Jesus had sent John up ahead. <clears throat> when they got there, they said, oh, you're going to Jerusalem for, for the celebration. Well, you're Jews. Sorry, you can't go through our town. And so in verse 54, <clears throat> we read this. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Hey, Jesus, they won't let us through. So can we pray that prayer to the atomic bomb prayer? We'll just pray that fire comes from heaven and wipes them off the face of the earth. We'll turn them into glass and then we'll have no problem walking right through up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> fire is used as judgment here. Now, I want to read like there's a side of me that would want to skip over this. But I have to read this first because it makes it it does make it a lot harder for me in explaining today's text. But there's a whole lot of tension that we kind of deal with as we read the Bible. Verse 55, but he, that's Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So Jesus says, listen, what you're saying 
That's kind of of Satan. I came to save men's lives, not to destroy men's lives. And so as we turn back to Luke chapter 12, and Jesus says, like now suddenly he's speaking of judgment. Like there's no question in my mind that what he's speaking of judgment. But we just, the last time we saw fire in the gospel of Luke, he says, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. But now he says in verse 50 or verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. And so looking at judgment, if we fast forward all the way to the end of the, the Bible in Revelation 21, verse 8, it starts talking about at the very end, the second death that all people see. You can die as an unbeliever, but eventually we believe in the bodily resurrection of all people. And at the end, there's this final judgment that they'll be cast in this lake of fire, fire and brimstone, an eternity of national. Like That's what the Bible says. You can go there, Revelation 21, 8. It's clear. And now concerning refinement, see, even Christians will undergo refinement. First Corinthians chapter three, we have a lot of ground to cover. So I'm just going to kind of mention these, but you can write it down. You can research on your own here in in Corinth, major problems. They were believers, but there's still major problems. And in first Corinthians chapter three, as Paul writes to the church, he says, listen, one day you will all stand before God as Christians. And we will undergo this baptism of fire for refinement and all of the impurity, all of our works, everything that we've done in our life will be brought to the surface before God. Our sins been paid for. This is not a judgment of of consequence. This is a judgment of refinement. So as we're lit up, the, the, the dross rises to the surface and it's cleaned away. And the Bible tells us that only which was good will remain. And he says, well, some of us might not have much, but you're going to be okay. Even though you like when you show up to heaven, you're still going to have smoking hair. You know what I mean? It says like, you'll still get in, but it's like, you know, you know <laughs> that you're in because Jesus paid for you. But when like the whole burning refinement process happens, <laughs> there ain't going to be a whole lot left. And see, the silversmith in this day, when he would refine his silver, he would burn it and burn it and burn it, and the dross would come to the surface. He would clean it away, and this process would happen over and over and over again. And he knew he was done when he could look over into the silver and to see his his face reflected into the top of the silver. That's when it's pure. And see, that's what Jesus is doing with us through this refinement. That's the other process of refinement. See, we were created in God's image. But the world's been turned upside down and we've been contaminated. And so as Christians, as we've been, our sins been paid for, there's this refinement process happening in our life where Jesus is cleaning off our dross, our sin. And then at the end times, when we stand before him, when we have our new bodies, finally the refinement process is done and we'll be able to see God face to face. Not be God, but but we will so bear the image of God that we'll be pure again. <clears throat> but in here in this picture, he's coming out of the Pharisee's house. He's furious with what Israel had done to the relationship with God, that they'd so turned in this relationship to this religion of do's and don'ts and putting this burden on people that they couldn't keep. And he said, this needs to go away with 
This is going to burn away. I'm done. I'm fed up with it. But see, now here's this tension. See, that day hasn't come yet. In verse 50, he kind of stops. He said, I'm so ready to like light the mat and to be done away with this place. But I have a baptism to undergo. See, now he's already been baptized by John the Baptist. Some have said that his his baptism with John the Baptist was like his inauguration. And his baptism on the cross was his crowning glory that he is king. And he says, I have a baptism to go. He's days away. He sees all of this sin and everything in his righteous indignation for what the world has become. And he wants to so just be done with it. But his love compels him so much that he's walking to the cross as an innocent man. As Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse, like somewhere down there, 17 or around, maybe a little bit higher. It says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And so while judgment is due the world, he says, you know what? Before I kindle the world, I've got to go and make the penalty, the pay the penalty for them because I love them so much that he loves you so much. Like every sin that you've ever committed, every lust, every sin, everything on the cross before you were born, Jesus was thinking of you and he was paying for that sin. That's overwhelming to think that he loves us that much. And he says, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. See, this weight of the sin is already beginning to press down upon him. He's already, see, we have a long, we have like seven chapters and it's going to take us a long time to get there. But see, for Jesus, this is like days away, weeks away. And this weight of the sin that he's about to have placed upon him, it's distressing him. It's going to sort of, it's going to sort of like build until like the garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and his sweat has droplets of blood that he's in so much stress from it. And yet he still goes. And the question is, well, what's driving him? The thing that's driving him is that he loves us so much. And then he goes on to say, verse 51, he's still talking to his disciples here. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I'm pretty sure that most of us would say yes. I mean, seriously, we're entering the Christmas season. Like peace on earth. Like there's references that he's the king of peace, that he's here to bring peace on earth. But the issue is he's bringing peace with men to God. See, it's it, we can have peace with each other if we're in proper relationship with God. And he says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. He says, I, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. What? Do you not, um, verse 52, for from now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against, nobody has a problem with the last one. They're like, oh yeah, that just makes sense, you know. <laughs> I love my mother-in-law, so I'm like, good. <clears throat> But so he's saying, what he's saying is, is if you listen to me, if you follow through with converting your life and surrendering to me, there's going to be division because the world is upside down. 
Like I'm not talking about, he's not talking about a little bit of religion. Because you can come to church on Sundays, you can do an hour, you can do, you can give a little bit of money, and you can, you can go through your life without there being conflict with those who don't believe as you believe. But a converted life, a worldview that has been so converted that by our world standards we say you're radical, to think that you have the only way that arrogance there, I'm like, I haven't said anything, like, like all I, it's not me. I don't like it as much as you do. But if Jesus is, claims to be God and he rose from the dead and all of the evidence that exists, like I, I'm not God. And this is God's plan. Like that brings division. Like it was Jesus who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. It, it was Peter quoting him in Acts chapter four that says, you know, all name, there's no other name by which a man can be saved. Like, these are divisive things. And so your family can be united. And I hope it's united around Christ and the cross. And, like, I chose my spouse based on, like, I was kind of a zealous nut, zealot nut. I realized that. Like, not that I'm, like, angry or I'm, like, I feel like I'm a nice guy. I love non-Christians. I spend a lot of time with non-Christians. But my worldview, my understanding, I'm like going to partner my life with somebody that has that same view because I want our family to go that direction. But he says there will be division. And then like the question is, how did all this happen? How did the world flip up down and upside down? I, part of this, I want to look at the bigger picture to kind of back up in history from a biblical understanding. And if you'll go with me to Ezekiel. Chapter 28, if you can find it, it's kind of difficult. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents. It's like right after um, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We'll see what comes next. I See, I did not sing this song as a kid. I wish I would. I wish I, okay. Come to Lamentations, and then you hit Ezekiel, and then you'll go to 28. We're going to fly over this. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But so here Ezekiel's gotten revelation from God about, before the creation of the world. And here's this description of who Satan is. And the Bible paints Satan out to be a real living creature. And so in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14. Speaking of Satan before the creation of the world. Says you were the anointed cherub. That's an angel who who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fires. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found upon you. So we learn, okay, sometime in eternity, like past, before the creation of the world, Satan was created. He was the highest angel. He was without sin. He was created by God and his role was to attend to the worship of God. Now we'll flip back a couple books because I just started. We know Isaiah. So you turn to the front of the Bible to Isaiah chapter 14. And Isaiah chapter 14 kind of continues this thread during this period. He says, you were there until unrighteousness was found in you. And in Isaiah chapter 14, we learn about this unrighteousness. So in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning or verse 12, Isaiah 14, verse 12. And this says how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, 
son of the dawn. So he's speaking of Satan. Here you were in the highest place of all of creation and you've fallen from there. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, there are five or six I wills. And this is the problem. The original sin is pride. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. <clears throat> How far are we supposed to go here? To verse 70. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who didn't allow his prisoners to go home? And so here's this casting of Satan to earth. This all happened before Genesis 1.1. And so now we, we go all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis is such a critical book. Because if we understand people, humans, the world around us, according to Genesis, it totally makes sense. I, I, I've heard it said, many atheists, many of those who are against the Judeo-Christian sort of worldview from the, the Old Testament to New Testament, they, there's no faith in God, there's no trust for God, but then they have the utmost faith in humanity, and when you start looking at humans track record, humans are not basically good people. Like we're basically pretty evil. Like seriously, if you start looking at all the bad stuff, pretty much every bad thing is kind of connected to a person. You know, like there's, there's obviously like earthquakes and stuff like that. But as we go back to Genesis chapter three, the world was in a state of perfection. God had created everything. He'd created Man and woman, life was good. He told him to cultivate everything. He said, just don't eat of this one tree. And now we pick up the story in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He existed in eternity past with God. He was already there before the creation of the world. He was created. He was cast out of heaven. And here he is in the garden. And he said to the woman, indeed, God, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? And we see him questioning what God said. Here he is tripping up man. His, his tactic hasn't changed. He's only gotten more experience. Then the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it. Or touch it or you will die. See, now she had taken... That's not what God said. God just said, don't eat from it. And so now she's adding to what God said. And she says, he says, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you might die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be made like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she, all, she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they 
were naked and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than from any beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a prophecy of the cross. Like all the way from there, there's this prophecy of the cross. From this moment, the DNA in humans changed to being that of sinful. This is where death entered. If you follow the story all the way through chapter 3, God said to himself, we've got to guard the tree of life. We're going to, guard, we're going to put some guards there because man can't live this way forever. The fact that we die is God's grace. Because if we continue to live in this perpetual body of sin when we're breaking down, like it was great, Joe and I were at Costco yesterday. I'm going to share this story, not, not to worry, but he's like, he took a fall, his ankle, pray for him, his, his ankle's been hurting. And he's like, yeah, you're too young to know. I'm like, no, I'm 37, but I have enough ministry with like people that are a couple years down the road for me. I know it's only going to get worse from here. Like, but can you imagine if you never could die and your body just kept breaking and breaking and breaking down and you couldn't die? That is not a good thing. And so God, in his graciousness and his mercy towards us, he says, you know what? I'm going to let you die so that you can get new bodies that I can refine you. But from this moment, the world was flipped upside down. How we think, how we act, Satan's still doing his tricks. And as we work our way back to Luke chapter 12. So when Jesus says to them, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth, but I came to divide. Like as we come to Christ and as you convert to Christ, like not just a profession from your mouth, but then when the teachings of Jesus and the things he says actually takes root in our heart and then the way we live our lives begins to shift, there's going to be division. I have all kind of friends that were like best friends that I have nothing to do with, not, not even because I cut them off, because they wanted nothing to do with me after I began to live my life. We don't know a lot of this persecution in the United States, but if you convert in a Muslim world today, You'll be executed. You will have your head cut off by your dad. Like that's division. And if they, you, if you leave the Middle East, there are people in the United States today that converted from Islam to Christianity and their families back in the Middle East have had funerals for them. They are dead to them. And quite frankly, in the United States, if we live fully, if you come to Christ 
from a non-Christian home or even a, a lukewarm Christian home, and you convert to Christ and your world begins to change and things that Jesus talked about you start doing, there's going to be conflict in your families. But you'll have peace with God. You have peace with God. And Jesus, like this is the thing that drives me crazy with American Christianity. You hear it all the time. You watch TV. You say, oh, if you just give me some money, God's going God's to make you wealthy. He's going to fix all your relationships. It doesn't work that way. Like your life amongst your people, like there could be some major difficulties in your life if you give your life to Christ. And Christ paints no pretty picture about this. He says, listen, to these guys that he's talking to, all of them, with the exception of John, were killed for their faith. You profess Christ as Savior, we're going to kill you. And they did kill him. And John, the only one who didn't get killed, it wasn't because they didn't try. And so as God flips you right side up and all of the most intimate relationships, what I see, these are your closest, most intimate relationships. If you're walking upright and everybody around you is upside down, you're going to have sort of problems. There's going to be problems. And he doesn't want them to be naive about this. I look at our, I look at our culture and there are things that like, there's one bumper sticker. It just like absolutely drives me berserks. Like it, like I understand the concept of it, but they haven't really thought through. And I don't mean to offend anybody. I haven't gone and checked all the cars in, in the parking lot. Like, like I told, I told my like wife, I'm like, well, I certainly these next two points. I kind of circled, like kind of like put a yellow light gun or like, you may not want to go down this road or you may like just be cautious. But this is the reality we face as Christians is there's division and, and Christianity will cause division. And we don't want to be obnoxious. We, we want to be loving, kind, considerate. Like this is we're not trying to be. We love our neighbors. We love those who Christ died for. Like I have so many friends that are not Christians. And I don't like, so I'm not, but the message of the cross is offensive. But there's the, have you guys seen these coexist bumper stickers? I, I should like, like I understand the concept. Like, like, we all want to get along. We don't want to go kill it. Like I'm all like for the thing. But somebody recently like broke down. Like it starts with the C is the Muslim crest. Well, well, Islam, if done correctly, like from the Quran, read it for yourselves. Like, like you are to kill infidels. And then I forget all of the other religions. And if you track it down, it's like, well, there's two that are there because they, they needed the letters. The Christianity, the cross is the last one. And true Christianity, I'm not saying that Christianity in history doesn't have bad, like the whole crusades, but that's not biblical Christianity. That's not people surrender to Christ. That's people using something called Christianity to do evil things. And so I like the idea, like the concept, like can't we all get along? But it ignores the evil in the world and the reality. Like in large part, Christians are being executed for their faith around the world. We live kind of in isolation. You can talk about Buddha, you can talk about Muhammad, you can talk about any other of these like prophets with no problem. But you start mentioning the name of Jesus, there's going to be problems. And there are major, major problems. And as a church, 
as a leader in the church, there are times when like I have to guard like what we stand for, who we'll partner with. And even this week, there's been two things that I'm like, okay, if I share this, I might get in trouble. <laughs> but here we go. So there's a lady that I know. She, I, I, I love her. She's, she's, I would not even describe her, like she's one of faith. Like I, there's no, like she's, she would identify with Christianity. I, I would probably even think that she is a Christian. She retired for one thing and she started working for Interfaith. Interfaith does a lot of good things. Like it's in Escondido. They kind of, they do all kinds of sorts of good things. I'm constantly approached by Interfaith if we will partner with them as a church. And I said, well, I don't want to be rude, so let's sit down and talk. Like, let's just sit down and talk, and we'll kind of see. And I remember talking with the two guys, and I said, now let's just say somebody's whole life is a total mess. Like, they are at their rock bottom. Like, maybe they're about to commit suicide, or maybe they're going to do this. They're at their wit's end, and they want to know about God. And they say, can you get somebody to help me with God? I said, how, what would happen in this situation? He's like, oh, I don't know. We could, we, we could have, you know, like, could there be like a, a Wiccan guy? He's like, oh, yeah, we have a Wiccan guy. We're interfaith. We're everybody. We could, could they have, you fill in the blank. It could be Islam. It could be Christian. It could be pseudo-Christian. It could be anything because they're interfaith. And I said, see, this is why we can't part- participate with, we, we, I, because, and I don't want to be judgmental. But I, we believe that God has revealed stuff and the ultimate answers are found in the Bible. And so we want to partner with people who like do, do this. And it was a, then the second inch, like I, I love Mormons. Like I really love Mormons. They're some of my favorite people to talk and interact with them. We have a lot to learn. At this, and I'm on the cemetery board and I was approached this Sunday. And. But it was a few, like probably six months ago. It was like after everybody had left from church on Sunday. And it's just me. I, something was going on in the afternoon. So I was kind of getting ready. And I hear a knock on the church door. <clears throat> and I see that it was the two guys in the white church with the name tags. And I was like, oh, guys, you're breaking the rules. You're breaking the rules. <laughs> like, you're breaking the rules. And I was real kind. I said, now, hey, guys, what's going on? And I'm like, you kind of know, like... There's a sort of unwritten rule, like I don't like I, I kind of disagree with your theology, and um, and I wouldn't show up at your church and start like I'm like you know that you're breaking the rules, and they're like no 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 we're not breaking the rules we just we really want to get along like we really and what we're trying to do is they they want to do a jog for Jesus, and they want to know if we would participate, and I said you know what guys like I really love you guys, and I think that we have a lot of lessons that we can learn from the Mormon Church as Christians. But I can't participate with this jog for Jesus because your understanding of who Jesus is is sharply contrasted with, with like our understanding of who Jesus is. And they said, well, that's, that's not really true, sir. And I said, well, you, I, kinda ha- I know a lot about your history. And do you want to talk about your history? It's like, no, no, we're not allowed to talk about our history. And I said, see, <laughs> I'm like, so like, you know, you know, best of luck, like, but we won't participate. And then all the pastors, like the evangelical pastors kind of talked about this. And see, that's division because even outside of our community, well, why don't all the churches get along? Well, see, Jesus was very clear about certain things. And, and it's hard, like nobody likes conflict. Like I hate conflict, although I deal with a lot of it. 
he wants us to stand for truth and what he's revealed in his word. And so there's, there's a line in the sand that we have to kind of stand up to. And it's not always popular. And in this, as he's talking about division amongst family, he's not talking about division amongst believers. See, we're supposed to be in unity, which is like, see, I'm like, I know I'm walking on a fine line and there's a lot of tension here. But if you would turn to me to the gospel of John and in the gospel of John, it's the last Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and John chapter 17. John has the, the longest recording of the last supper. And this is nearing the end of the Last Supper, Jesus begins to pray. And this is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And so in John chapter 17, verse 20, he begins to expand his prayer from those of the disciples that are are before him to the church that's going to come following them. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And in them and you and me, that I may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you've loved me. And so as Jesus is this prayer, he's praying for unity amongst those who follow him, which is great tension, especially in our culture, because the parameter of who, like, where do we draw the line? What issues do we draw the line over? Like, I often refer to things in my right hand and things in my left hand. Things in my left hand I don't, like, fight for. I don't die over. I'm, I feel strongly about things in my right hand are, like, the what's been kind of turned into a bad word, but it never started out. The, the fundamentals of the faith. Like, like, there's five core issues. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. This Bible is the literal word this is the word of god that he revealed that jesus literally died he rose from the grave that he was born of a virgin these are these are like the core things and see those are the things that we divide over and so like even in valley center there's like how many of us are there i think there's five of us evangelical churches where the pastors meet on a monthly basis we we have plenty of left-hand things that we disagree about but there's like the essentials. That's kind of like, no, we're united over these things. We'll partner with like the community. Like we help each other out. And so there's tension. Like, like just because somebody uses the name Christian doesn't necessarily mean that, that they are like. And if so, if you just in that, like the audacity of me to say that I'm not a Christian just because I don't believe the same thing you believe is. I mean, isn't that our culture? I mean, this is this is uncomfortable here. But see, the Bible makes it clear that the Christian is one who's trusted in Christ alone, not of works. And when they've trusted in Christ, when they believe upon him, according to Ephesians 1.13, that they've been sealed with the spirit. And in that, according to 1 Corinthians 12.13, they're placed into the body of Christ. And so now there are Christian groups that say they agree with this, but you need to do works in order to assure your journey into there. And so we would say, no, 
No. We have to kind of draw the line. And it's difficult because it's not popular. Okay, back to Luke 12. Maybe we're moving on here. But there's text. Jesus here is very clearly saying, listen, if you follow after me, there's going to be division. And I love that him, you know, I see, I say that and always the him like disappears. You know, I will follow no turning back, no turning back. There's a bunch of really good stanzas in that. I will follow Jesus song. And so he's letting them know, like, listen, you follow me. You're, you're could be disowned from your family. They are going to kill you. Like he's got 12 guys to 11 of them, 11. They will kill you for following me. They will. Peter on his execution day, they were going to crucify him on the cross and he pled with them. I am not worthy to be executed in the same way that my Lord was executed. So they said, okay, we'll honor you. We'll crucify you upside down. Like it was brutal. Like this is this world that we live in is upside down and Christ sets us right side up in him because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And he doesn't promise us that like all of the prosperity gospel guys, like you may have less money. You may have to walk away from a profession. You may have division in your family. And then he continues. In verse 54, and he says he was also saying to the crowd. So now he looks up and he addresses all of these people. And he says, when you see a cloud in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming and it's and it's so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blow and you say it'll be a hot day. And it turns out that way. See, in Israel, if it was if it comes from the west, it's coming off the Mediterranean. If you go to the story of like. Back in Kings, when Elijah was challenging their gods, when they saw a cloud, they're like, oh, rain's coming. Like, just the sight of a cloud meant rain. They said, oh, the wind's blowing up. That was their Santa Ana, blowing up from Africa. If you feel that wind coming from the south, oh, it's going to be hot today. Like, we follow the weather. Like, we just do. Like, we're in San Diego. We got, like, we have, like, two days of rain so far. We have, like, seven more to go this season. Like, we don't have weather in Southern California, and yet, apparently, you can get a job as a weatherman in San Diego, because there's plenty of, like, like, it's, I mean, seriously, they, like, we, every night on the news, every morning, weather's, like, one of those main things that we're going to talk about. And so, the whole, like, this week, I mean, how many of us were looking forward to the rain? I totally was. Like, how they were able to figure that out, I know that, don't explain, I know there's computers and all this stuff. But it's like a week out. We know, oh, there's going to be rain on Wednesday. And before we got to do that, it's going to be like you're going to feel like you're living in the, the three little piggies because your house might blow over. But then the rain's coming. And then you're going to have a day off. And then there's going to be rain today. So I come out today. I'm like, come on, rain. Where are you coming? I've already asked like seven people. I thought it was going to rain tonight or today. Somebody told me that it was going to rain tonight. I just can't. Fourth quarter. That'll teach the Green Bay Packers to mess with the Chargers. <laughs> frozen tundra soggy san diego nothing on our best high school football team you know um but so we we why do we watch the weather because we want to be prepared oh it's gonna rain oh i need to wear shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt today because it's gonna be rainy oh it's gonna be sunny today oh i'm gonna wear shorts and t-shirt and a flip-flop i don't really get my my clothing stays the same 
But if you go to where there's real weather, you make preparations. And if you're a farmer, you shut off your water. Hey, there's going to be a bunch of, we'll shut off our water. And Jesus is saying, listen, you guys can look at the elements and you can accurately interpret the elements for today and tomorrow. And you respond. But then he goes on to say, you hypocrites, verse 56. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Jesus already has done all sorts of miracles. John the Baptist has come out proclaiming him. King Herod executed all of the babies that were two years and under that were male some 30 years before. We remember stuff from 30 years ago. The Vietnam was 40 years ago, and we still remember it clearly. I wasn't even born until at the very end of the Vietnam War, and yet I remember it like I was there because of hearing from people. Like we remember. They have all of this evidence, everything. Jesus is doing all sorts of miracles. They're flocking to him to see him because of the evidence. And yet they're not responding to him. Those in the house behind him, the Pharisees and scribes, they'd studied it. Here the Messiah walks into their presence and they reject him. They don't understand. He's like, you guys can interpret the signs of the times for today and tomorrow concerning weather. Yet in history, the Messiah has come and is in your presence. And you fail to analyze what's really happening amongst you. Most people are so opposed to Christianity. They tell me, oh, the Bible is so filled with um, is so filled with contradictions and it's not true. It's like, well, have you, have you read it? Well, no, I've never read it cover to cover. Oh, hmm. Have you read like a little bit of it? Like one book of the Bible? No, 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 no. It's all filled with, have you done any sort of historical study on textual criticisms to understand how we got? No, I just know it's all filled. It's like, like there's a lot of evidence on the scriptures, like in all of you. Like, start doing a little research, and you might be surprised. Lee Strobel sure was when he tried to disprove Christianity. And I'm glad he did, because now we have that case for Christ, which is a great tool that we give away to help you come to terms with the facts. And then he goes on to say, verse 57, he's going to unpack this. He says, why do you not even your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with them. So that he might not drag you before the judge and the judge turn to you, turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. See, in those days when you went to court and you were taking somebody to stand before a judge, you, you would like walk over to his house. Hey man, it's time to go see a judge. Okay, you ready? Let's go. You would walk together to go see the judge. And it would definitely be of like benefit. This is like, mediation like in today's courts it's way better to come to terms in mediation than it is to go before a judge he says if you're going there why don't you make peace with a guy come to terms because if you go before the judge there's no undoing it judge is going to hammer you for everything you got and there's no undoing it and the point is jesus is saying guys i'm with you i'm with you i love you to us he says i've paid the price for you I've judged you, yet I've taken your judgment. And all you have to do is to believe in me. Stop being stubborn. Stop resisting. Humble yourselves before me and accept me as Lord. Because the day is coming when you die and you stand before the judge and there's no one doing it. And yet Jesus is pleading with you today. 
listen, I've paid it all. I've paid it all. I've gone to the cross. Every bad deed that you've committed, every thought that you've ever had, anything you've looked at, all of that before you existed, he was on the cross and it was placed upon him. Now is the time to reconcile yourself with God. Because when you die and you stand before him, it's over. And he says to us in the beginning of this, verse 49, I have come to cast fire. Well, why? It's been 2,000 years. Last week's section, this readiness, it's been 2,000 years. Well, we're 2,000 years closer, like we know that much. And what I want to end with is Second Peter. So if you turn over to Second Peter, like to put this into perspective, and we're going to end with this. A couple. So Second Peter is towards the back of the Bible. If you hit First John, you've gone too far. And in Second Peter chapter three, Peter, just to kind of put the Bible kind of to link it all together, the guy who wrote this was standing there when Jesus was speaking. This is Peter was in the crowd like watch hypocrisy, watch greed, be ready for me. I've come to bring fire on the earth. Peter was there. He denied Jesus three times the night he was arrested. Then the rooster crowed. Then he's at the cross burying him. And then Jesus appeared. And you remember Peter was so ashamed, weeping at that third denial. And there's a word in the Greek for that fire pit that he was by. The only other place is on the beach with Jesus. When Jesus asked him, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, do you love me? But he uses three different words. And Jesus starts, Peter starts weeping. Yes, Lord, what can I do to show you that I love you? And that same word of like that fire is the only other place that that word is used to kind of link those two together. Peter would received forgiveness. He was there through all of this. And at the end of his life, this is what he writes. And there's so much similarity between the story and this one. Second Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. See, God, see, we exist in time outside of our creation. See, God is not created. He's outside He doesn't live in the whole time. He just is. Like in heaven, we won't have watches, which is going to be so awesome. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, verse 9, The the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why has this fire not come? Because God wants us to turn our hearts to him. When I was in Israel last year, I think it was, there's, let me think if I got it. I'm going to kind of do my resident Israel is. Um, is it Megiddo that overlooks the, the um, valley? Yes. yes. Armageddon, valley. Armageddon Valley. Yes, Megiddo. There's this mountain, Arm, this, this Megiddo hill. There's, I was thinking of the one that's down, but this one, Masada. not Masada. See, Megiddo is the one I'm talking about. Just to just strike the last 30 seconds for the record, please. You know, like, so on Megiddo, you overlook and you see this whole Jezreel Valley. And we were there and the tour guide was talking about the judgment that's going to come in the Bible. And I think it's in Isaiah talks about that this whole valley will be filled up with blood. And he's talking like this, hor- like this horrible scene. 
And I remember standing there, and all I could think of was this verse. And at the end, I'm like, can I say something? I'm like, just to remind us that the only reason that this hasn't happened yet is because God loves us so much that he's waiting for every last person that will turn their hearts to him, that they'll turn their hearts. And he says, don't, don't, be, don't let people start making fun of like the Bible. God says all this stuff, but it hasn't happened. Well, the reason it hasn't happened is because God wants all people to come to repentance. But then verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Doesn't that sound familiar from last week? In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, Christians, we totally believe in global warming. It's going to get hot, real hot. It might not be the way that it's predicted, but that there is a day when the earth is going to get so hot that everything burns up. And since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conducts? That holy means set apart. In godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of the Lord. That sounds like readiness from Jesus, doesn't it, last week? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. The best is yet to come, people. In which righteousness dwells, no sin. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things are hard to understand. I love that part. Circle if you circle your Bible. Like the Apostle Peter is referring to the Apostle Paul's writings, the New Testament, most of it. He says some of the things he writes are hard to understand. So it's okay if you stumble over some of Paul's writings which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. See, this is why we have to be willing to draw a line in the stand over the, like, especially over the essentials because people will distort what the Bible says to their destruction. Verse 17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard That sounds a whole lot like this whole talk in Jesus over. And he says, be on your guard. Be careful so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Verse 18, the key of all of this. But grow in the grace, grace, unmerited favor that God loves you so much. That he doesn't want you to work for your salvation. Your relationship with him is totally based on what he did. It's finished. And knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. We need to realize that as we live our lives, the people that we have the most intimate relationships with our families, our co-workers, our, wherever you hang out, your hobbies. Most of the world doesn't think like this. It thinks upside down because they don't know Christ. They live in a sinful state of prior to regeneration. And so when God saves us, when we believe upon him, we're turned right side up. 
And we need to grow in him. We need to be like him. We're not in attack against the world. The Bible makes it clear we're to view those that don't know Christ through his eyes. He loves all of us. We're just sinners saved by grace. And your family member, the one that you work with that doesn't know Christ, we're to love upon them, to be patient with them. Because it strikes me all through the Bible, especially this the most per, like the most patient of all is God. Like his patient, it, it exceeds that of man's. And so we want to walk with him and grow close to him day by day. And so, Father, we just come before you. Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, um, to grow in our understanding and our faith of the things of the scriptures. Lord, we have a lifetime of being taught by our world and our culture through um, just simple humanistic understanding of the earth, its origins, uh, people. And so we have a lot of undoing. And I confess, Lord, that when I look at these hard texts of Christ, it challenges me. But the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus, he, he, he's Lord. And if he's Lord, what he speaks is truth. And so, Lord, will you warn us that a fire is coming? Your love is clear in the scriptures that you want all people to come to salvation. And so, Father, we pray that as we live for that day when we stand before you, Lord, we pray that you would increase our love for those around us that don't know you. Father, help us to be lights in this dark world. We do pray for our families, our friends. Lord, as uh, faces and people come to our minds, Lord, we ask that you would use us, Lord, um, to help share the gospel with them. Lord, we just love you so much. Um, We thank you that you are God, that you have this whole world, everything that we know, under control. And so as Peter admonished us to do, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in grace, that we would grow in our knowledge of you. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.